0: Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and what you're up to, and that you show us who we are in you. So as we reflect on these words this morning, moved by your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to see the glory of the gospel, that we might have hearts turned toward Jesus, not in despondence of sin and failure, but in great confidence because of the magnitude of your love for us. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been to um, any meetings like 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous Narcotics Anonymous, but they begin this way. The group will be in there together, and anytime somebody is going to speak, they'll stand up and say, My name is Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tim, and I'm an alcoholic. If you've ever been in the room for that, you'll know that they're not standing up and saying that with great shame. The point is not to stand up and humiliate yourself in front of them. You don't say that and people go, boo, how dare you chase after alcohol. You're not being yelled at. There's power in it. In those rooms, there's no pretending. None at all. They don't walk in there to impress one another. They walk in there with their very real struggles, and they know that as they confess their struggles, the reality of their lifelong struggle with addiction, that they won't face rejection that they're in a room full of people that are going to struggle with them. That as they celebrate victories, they won't celebrate alone, they'll celebrate together. As they suffer through temptations and defeats, they will not suffer alone. They'll suffer together. Now I think these programs have lasted so long and have such a powerful track record when they work because they've tapped into something incredibly powerful. I think they've tapped into the transforming power of authenticity. What can happen in our human hearts when we toss aside our pride, when we put away the costumes, when we stop pretending, and we walk into a room and we own the reality of who we are. And a community that is formed around that authenticity. It's something I think the church can learn from And in fact, it's sad to me that that kind of concept, to stand up and say that I am 10 and I'm an alcoholic, or I am 10 and I'm the worst sinner I know, is such a strange thing for churches. Probably something we've never heard a pastor or anybody else say. This morning I want to talk about our core value as a church of authentic community. This idea that we are a community that's not formed around any other idea or value but this, we are defined by the grace of God. And that we've been brought together with one another for flourishing, for love, and for encouragement. And the lens I want to look at this core value through this morning is our passage in 1 Timothy 1. So we're going to walk through the passage a little bit. I'll break it up into a couple different sections to so help get our minds around it. The first one's this, a contrast. So 1 Timothy is one of the last books in the New Testament that was written. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. One of the founders uh, of the early church who had gone around the Roman Empire and planted tons of churches. He wrote 13 books of scripture. First Timothy was written by him to his ministry partner and mentor, Timothy. Great name. Timothy had been left in the city of Ephesus. Third biggest city in the Roman Empire. um, And he had been left there by Paul to help um, address some chaotic division that had begun to happen there. It was a very prominent church. It had books of Scripture written to them and from that city to other places by Paul and, and, and by uh, the Apostle John. But what's happened is now, after a few decades of that church existing, some chaotic divisions started happening. But it's not happening because the outside world is making inroads. It's not happening because something is breaking in from the in- outside to to. Uh, 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 poison the community there it's happening through the leadership that's in that church it's happening through the pastors what had happened is Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to help figure this out so in 1st Timothy we have this contrast between Paul and Timothy on the one hand what Paul is telling Timothy that matters and we have the contrast of the false teachers The people that had risen up that were causing the chaos. And so I want to look at these two in contrast. And first let's look at these uh, false teachers. What they were doing was they were teaching a way of life that I like to call Jesus plus. They were displaying and living out and telling other people that what those folks needed to be whole and complete is the grace of Jesus and what God's done through him plus something else. They needed the grace of Jesus and everything that Jesus had accomplished for them plus something else. No, what they were saying is we are very impressive in our knowledge. They were saying things like that. They were saying, well, we know we know the Old Testament, the law of God, inside and out. And God must have given it to us and our ancestors that were probably a Jewish background. Um, they gave it to our ancestors because we're really trustworthy. Our ancestors were really smart, and we are too. We're really trustworthy, and that's why we were given and entrusted with Scripture. God looked at us and he saw that we were worthy. So they had pride in their superior knowledge. They looked down on others because they thought they were smarter than everybody else. And because they were smarter, everybody else should listen to them. That that was their resume that they put in front of people. They also had pride in their backgrounds. They were trying to show that they had impressive uh, families. Paul talks about it. He he calls it endless genealogies. So these folks were bringing printouts of their Ancestry.com profile to church and and showing up to them and saying, Look who my great-great-great-great-grandfather was. Patting themselves on the back. And they were very devoted people. They interpreted the the call to follow after Jesus is to, to have forgiveness of sins and then get really, really severe in your religious devotion. Here's what I mean. They were teaching people that if they really wanted to follow Jesus, they needed to abstain from this food or that food. Some of them were even saying we need to abstain from marriage altogether. Let's stop being married. It's just a distraction. Just a distraction. And so if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to be super smart like us. You need to listen to what we say. And you should be impressed because we are super smart. we got this great pedigree. we got these degrees behind our name. And we are super, super devoted. They had Jesus plus. They were putting forward an idea that following after Jesus is a life of building a resume for yourself building up a LinkedIn profile. It's very impressive. I'm going to build this religious resume and all these great things I've done. And that is what should be impressive. Now let's contrast that with the Apostle Paul who writes these words to Timothy. Look at what he says about himself in verses 12 and 13. He says that God has considered him worthy. Now he's saying that with more than a little bit of sarcasm. It's probably something those false teachers were saying. We were interested. With, with our call to be leaders because God found us worthy. But notice how Paul says it. He doesn't say, I've been considered worthy because I was super faithful and I had a lot of faith. He said, No, I haven't been judged faithful because of all of my knowledge. He says, He's what? He was ignorant and he lacked faith. He's not saying God looked down and was impressed with my degrees and the number of books I'd read and was really impressed with my faith. Apostle Paul saying, No, I was ignorant. And I lacked faith. I hadn't been judged faithful because I was especially committed to God. Look what he says, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent man. Paul understood something important. His standing before God, his calling as a teacher in the church, could not be something that God was impressed with his resume and said, "This is my God." That his resume was a non-starter. That if he had any standing at all before God, it had to rest on the work of Jesus for him, period. Not Jesus plus a resume, Jesus, period. He couldn't depend upon himself, and so he cast himself on the sure mercy of the God who justifies the ungodly. That's Paul's language from the book of Romans, who promises to declare people righteous in his sight because of Jesus and Jesus alone. And that and that alone is how he could be judged faithfully as he says. Which is why he can say in verse 15, this shocking statement, Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am present tense, am I am the worst. When Paul wrote this, he had been preaching the gospel for decades. He had planted dozens of churches. He had already written books of scripture. When he says, do not be impressed with me, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one. I am the worst one. He can say this because he knows that in a world full of resumes, of building accolades and seeking the praise of people, God disrupts by his grace. And that in this grace that comes through Jesus, Paul has found the freedom to stop pretending. He has found the freedom to be seen and known. And truly loved. He's found the freedom to leave behind resume building. Because he knows that with the coming of Jesus, this whole idea of being righteous because of our own works is thrown out of the window. And in its place, God gives us grace upon grace. A better foundation to build our lives. A better foundation to build a community. He knows that Timothy is there in Ephesus. And the temptation is going to be when these teachers start showing their resume... The temptation for Timothy is going to be to try to out-resume He knows the temptation is going to be for Timothy to say, well, you guys did this, well, look what I did. Oh, you think you're smart? Let me prove to you that I'm smart. Oh, you think you've been really faithful and you've done a lot of work for the kingdom of God? Let me start listing off all the stuff that I've done. He knows that temptation is there for Timothy to counter their resumes with a resume. But Paul is saying... That the true pathway to building authentic community, the true pathway to seeing God's grace come to life in our world is to stop playing that game. To stop. And the bedrock, the foundation for flourishing, the foundation for true community, is Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one I know. And I'm the worst one. It's a lot like AA. I'm Tim and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Tim and I'm the worst sinner I know. The contrast could not be more stark between these false teachers and the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul hammers home on this because he knows this, that that resume building, it is absolute poison to building a community that is centered on the gospel. It's absolute poison for churches. It destroys everything. It's like nu- it's like a nuclear explosion in the church when that gets left behind. You guys ever heard of Chernobyl? They did an HBO series a couple years ago, but it was a, a nuclear plant in the Ukraine. Not the Ukraine. In Ukraine, uh, in the 80s, it, it, it suddenly had this fallout and this explosion. In the initial explosion, not a lot of damage happened. A couple people died that were near the nuclear reactor, but the aftermath, absolutely destroyed the countryside. The initial explosion was bad enough, but the aftermath of the radiation that came from that reactor, there's places nearby that are still uninhabited. There's untold thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that have gotten cancer. Just from that explosion that happened decades ago. Paul is essentially saying here, in the book of 1 Timothy, not just in our verses, That leaving behind this idea that Jesus Christ did not come for the righteous, but he came for sinners, to call them to life, is like a nuclear explosion going off in the church. It doesn't just hurt the one time. It poisons everything else. This mindset of resumes and building resumes of impressiveness for each other. When we leave behind, Jesus came into this world to save sinners and I'm the worst, it's like a nuclear explosion. If you keep reading in First Timothy, you'll see the problems that the Apostle Paul was sending uh, Timothy there to fix. There's divisions in worship. People refusing to worship with one another. There's people measuring each other on stuff that just does not matter. It's like if today we started coming into worship and we started judging each other by who sings the loudest or who cries the most or who shouts the most or who speaks in tongues the most or whatever kind of thing. And what had happened there in Ephesus is it didn't just affect worship. It wasn't like the numbers dropped and that was the chaos. What was happening was widows that depended on the generosity of the church were being overlooked. And now they were going hungry. They were going without. There was gossip. There was favoritism. There was greed. It was destroying the church there. And that is the fruit of the poisoned water of Jesus' plus. That's the fruit of forgetting that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. It's rotten fruit that destroys. It ruins community because it means that no one is ever really known, no one is truly ever seen, and so nobody's ever truly loved. It creates a community where we just project images that aren't really us, where we put costumes on to pretend. And the church is not cosplay. It's not meant to be. Church is not a place where we put costumes on to impress each other. It's not a museum where we hang our works of art on the wall to be admired. Church is a hospital where we come together and we find the medicine that we so desperately need for our hearts. Forgetting this, adding Jesus plus, it ruins community because no one's ever seen and truly known. And I think all we have to do to know that's true is to look around the communities in the so-called Bible Belt. We live in a place called the Bible Belt. It's called that because this is a place where the average home has three Bibles and there's still going to be a mayor's prayer breakfast, which that's fine. There's still going to be somebody praying at every chamber of commerce cutting, you know, opening event. It's a Christian community founded on traditional values. Those are big words you hear. But you walk out this door and you walk down the street, and our city is eat up with drug addiction. Our city is eat up with broken homes. Our city is eat up with abuse. And we learn as we grow up in these communities to hide. That we can't be known because it's too dangerous. We'll be rejected. We'll be turned away. What we've learned is to drink from that poison water of forgetting the grace of God and Jesus. And sadly, more often than not, I feel like our churches train us to do that. Train us to hide. But here's the good news. The same way that forgetting this is like poisoning the water and it just keeps poisoning us over and over again. In the same way, the flip side is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of a community is profoundly transforming. And it leads to true flourishing. When the gospel of Jesus is at the center of a church community, it transforms everything. It will mean doing the hard work of keeping uh, Jesus at the center. That doesn't happen naturally. It will mean coming back to Him time and time again, putting to death our prejudices and putting to death our pride. But it will mean that our church becomes an authentic community that radiates the grace of God. As we move more and more toward being and becoming a gospel-centered community, where we can readily say, Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the worst, and that's my strength. Because my strength doesn't come from me, it comes from Him. I receive mercy not because I was smart enough or ambitious enough, but I receive mercy because of His overflowing grace and I can't account for it. Jesus has won me to Himself, not because He's so very impressed with me, but as Paul says in verse sixteen, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. That brings me to my next section. This is easy to say, but it's hard to live out. This all sounds nice, and it's incredibly easy to forget. It sounds nice, but it's incredibly easy to forget because we live in a world that screams at us to believe lesser things. It should be a warning to us that this fallout, this chaos, happened in Ephesus.
1: As I mentioned, this was a
0: church with a very long history of God's grace at work. They had letters of Scripture written to them and letters of Scripture written from their city by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. This was a place that if any church should have got this right automatically, it should have been emphasis. And that means that we cannot take the danger of what Jesus Plus will do lightly. It can slip in by accident. After all, our hearts are really good at creating idols. We can't simply assume that because we have a great statement of faith or a great history of God at work in our midst that we can walk forward presuming that we're right. Because the world we live in and the selfishness of our own hearts wars against the truth of this passage. I've thought about this passage a whole lot in the last few years. We're a new church. And I have so many conversations with people that will ask me, why bother with Dunn? Why bother with a new church in Dunn? There's churches all over the place. And why should I come to your church? You don't even have a building. Why should I come to your church? And it is tempting when I have these conversations to start giving people a resume. It is very tempting for me to try to dress things up to be impressive. It's tempting to lie about the number of people we have on Sunday morning. It's tempting to start listing my degrees and my ministry experience to convince people that I'm a compelling preacher who loves people perfectly. Now the first thing I... Not, I'm not compelled for the first thing I say to people to be this, but it probably should be. When people ask me, why should I come to your church, I should probably start saying this, you should join our church plant because I might be the worst sinner you've ever met. Me. Maybe I should say, you should come and join us because we're maybe the worst collection of people in this whole town. And if you join us, you are going to see the grace of God at work, because it is grace upon grace that is poured out on us. Because we are the group of people in Don who needs the most grace. Maybe that should—that's too many words for a church sign. But I don't know. maybe we'll one day have a church sign. The worst people, chief of sinners, church is what we should call this <laughs> place. This is a sermon about our core value of authentic community, that we're a community of people defined by God's grace, joined together for love, flourishing, and good deeds. And this kind of community will only happen and will only continue when the religious images that we create to impress each other, to cover up our failures and weaknesses, are left behind. Guys, those things will kill you. They will kill your heart. We have to leave them behind. We have to toss this, leave the costumes for hell We don't need to impress each other. They tear our hearts to pieces. They tear our communities to pieces. Now I know there's a usefulness to religious costume. Because pastors do it all the time. We do. We can seem like used car salesmen. We'll put up a front. Nobody truly knows us. We'll have our pastor voice. And it's not our true voice because you had a conversation with us. And we don't talk the same between those two. And no one knows that we struggle, that we doubt, that we don't have all the answers. And it's not just pastors. Sadly, church people learn to do this pretty early. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We pretend everything's okay when it's not. We pretend that we have it all together. We pretend that we are walking with confidence and boldness when sometimes we are barely crawling forward. But here's the truth. And I mean this. I'm the worst person I know. And it's not false humility. I've sat across from people confessing to me the worst things they've ever thought, said, and did I am the worst person I know. I don't know anybody who's acted more often in selfishness than me. Absolutely no one. That's not false humility. I don't know anyone who's a bigger sinner than me. And the reason I think that God has called me to this work here and done, and has called us together as a church in this beginning stages of our life together is because people will see that if God's grace can find me, if it can find Tim, you can find anybody. Anybody at all? Now, I've got nothing for you as a pastor if you're looking for a great visionary leader. If you need a visionary leader, it's not going to be me. There's other places to go. If you're looking for a moral authority that's above the common person and above struggles, that's not me. You've got to find somewhere else. I've got nothing for you if you're looking for someone who has it all together because I do not. But here's what I do have. I have a love that has found me that is stronger than my sin. I have a love that is washing me clean. I have a love that has bent me out from my selfishness, has bent me out and turned me toward others. And that's an absolute miracle. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and I intend to be the worst sinner I know. But because of my sin, because of my selfishness, because of my foolishness, the grace of God is going to shine on the brighter. Because the power of his grace has broken the power of sin that has held me bound. And that's my real resume. That's my best foot forward, not the resume that I've built, but the resume of Jesus that I've been gifted by grace. We talked about it earlier when we confessed our faith in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why do you say you're righteous? Why do you say you're righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of my worthiness. Not that I'm acceptable to God because of my faith, but only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ that is mine. That's what I'm talking about. So where does this lead us? Where does this take us to? It takes us to where our passage ends this morning in verse 17. It leads us to worship. Look at verse 17. Paul's written these things to Timothy. And it's almost like he breaks out into a song in this last verse. So he's writing to Timothy these instructions. And Paul, it's like he can't stop his pen. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul breaks into the praise because he understands that this basic confession, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, is beyond our comprehension. We can't account for it. Staring into the face of it, we can only be baffled. We can only wonder at this grace. We can only come to this truth, this mystery, and be in awe. God, compelled by no reason, except for his love for us, has moved heaven and earth to rescue us. And in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, our sins are dealt with for good, so that we might receive not only forgiveness for our sins, but the righteousness of Jesus credited to us, and we are forever connected to him. And there's no power in heaven or on earth that can remove his love from us. Friends, in a minute we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to come here, and this isn't just a neat religious thing for us to do. It's our very present war, using the ordinary things of bread and grape juice. You guys got little wafers. Those are so profoundly ordinary. It's Jesus feeding us by faith. Nourishing our souls as we focus on him and what he's done for us and who he is for us. And he invites us to this table. He gives himself, gives us himself assuring us of his commitment to show us his grace. So as we come to this table, we don't come as people who have earned a seat. Get that out of your mind. We come as those who know that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And guys, I think we're the worst group in town. But it's for this very reason that we've received mercy. That in us, in Christ church, Christ's church done, as the worst sinners in done, Jesus will display his perfect patience as an example of those who will believe in him find eternal life. So as we partake of this Supper together, as we sing His praises again in just a moment, let's be in awe of His grace. It's the only proper response. Let's be amazed at the depths of His love for us and sing as those who have been set free from a world of resumes, as those who have experienced the disruptively wonderful love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of the Gospel. That we don't have to jump to get you to notice us, that you have sought us out, that we don't have to bring you our impressive resumes and bring those to one another, but that we can toss every bit of that aside and finding you the true treasure, finding you all that we need, finding you a foundation to build our lives individually and build our lives together. So work in us, Lord. Work in us to remain in this place of humility, not to grovel in sin, but that we might glory in the worthiness that is ours through Jesus. We crowd this in his name. Amen.